people were pre-smartphones and most people didn't have data plans. And so they needed to convince, convince the world that you could do a lot of really cool things with a smartphone and a data plan that you couldn't do on a flip phone. And watch video was one of those magical experiences. That's Hunter Walk. He's currently a partner at Homebrew Ventures, a seed stage venture fund. What he's talking about is a period in 2006 before Steve Jobs walked onto the stage to announce the first iPhone. At that time, Hunter was a product manager at Google, having already spent a few years working on AdSense and recently joined the YouTube team after it had been acquired in early 2006. Apple wanted to convince the world, a pre-smartphone and more importantly, pre-data plan world, that there was a huge benefit to having a small supercomputer in your pocket versus the massively popular flip phone. And the capacity to record, edit, and upload video before streaming it back was one of those magical experiences that Apple wanted the world to see. That's where Hunter and YouTube came in. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today, we're speaking with Hunter Walk, a partner at Homebrew Ventures, a seed stage venture fund. But before Hunter and his partner teamed up to create the type of fund they wished that they themselves had been able to raise from, Hunter had been working on YouTube as a product manager, ensuring that the still nascent platform would be able to make the jump to mobile. Over a decade ago, Apple had approached them before Steve Jobs had even announced the world's first iPhone. There was no public app store at the time and no third-party apps. Apple wanted to have complete control over the entire experience and built the first video app for the iPhone that would pull YouTube content. It was a risky move for YouTube to take, but the alternative to working with Apple was, at that time, going directly to a carrier and paying them large sums of money to include your app on all their devices. It was an exciting but challenging time, as Hunter recounts, because there were so many moving pieces and not everyone saw that the smartphone was going to play such a huge role in our daily lives in just a few more years. Hunter compares it to the pushback he got from some investors when in 2000, he was part of Linden Labs, the creators of Second Life, a massive online multiplayer game. Hunter had joined the company after working for Mattel in the interactive video game space and had worn many different hats within the company as the first non-tech hire. When working on raising money, many investors just didn't see how individuals would want to pay for their own broadband connection at home, an element essential to the game's success. So if you're a product manager yourself, love YouTube, or are just curious about how a startup like YouTube sold to Google for $1.65 billion in 2006, the largest consumer tech acquisition at the time, and then went on to work with Apple to ensure that they'd make the jump to smartphones, get ready, because Hunter is going to share his insights and experiences into all this and more. So let's get started. Hey, Hunter. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Super excited to have you on the show and, you know, to get the amazing opportunity to speak to you and, you know, learn a little bit more about you and the things that you've done as a product manager with Google, working on YouTube and what you're currently doing today with Homebrew. But before we get into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you yeah, study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, although I've been out in uh, the Bay Area now for almost 20 years, I grew up in New York City, New York City suburbs. So came out west for grad school. And, you know, so I'm not a I'm not a California native, but I feel like a, a local by now. 
my introduction to tech wasn't wasn't command line programming like as a kid. It was actually more desktop publishing, graphic design. So I was, you know, the the kind of geeky newspaper editor, you know, in in school and everything. And you know, as more and more tools sort of gave us the the capabilities of you know, laying out the college newspaper digitally, adding in um, different types of media, you know, sort of getting more and more down to kind of like electronic information as opposed to, you know, the actual printed paper in College Center. It just opened me up to a world where um, I saw technology as a creative tool, you know, as a communication tool, as a community tool. And uh, I think that it really ended up influencing, you know, sort of the the jobs I had at uh, Second Life and YouTube and AdSense um, all come all come from those early days of you know being the the editor of the high school paper that's really cool and so what was the what was the pivot point that that drove you into tech startups how did you i guess start your your early days of your career yeah um you know my dad did traditional business he's retired now and my mom was an artist and art teacher and for a long time not even so much what they wanted for me but just more kind of trying to figure out for myself hey you know there's parts of this business side that interest me but i'm also really sort of captivated and inspired by you know just the ability for people to go in a room and create and make things and so through like the earliest years of my career and my college i was kind of jumping back and forth between that i worked on a i worked on a network talk show like late night talk show my senior year of college and stuff so there was a bunch of paths ahead of me that um you know i could have gone down and maybe been happy but it was really when i started to think about and get exposed to the consumer internet, you know, sort of the second half of the 90s and start to see businesses built around um, using this technology, you know, for consumers, not just for, you know, universities or businesses or sort of, you know, research. And I realized or I hoped that like the fact that maybe I was bilingual, a little bit of left brain, a little bit of right brain, like a little bit of spreadsheets, you know, a little bit of command line, you know, a little bit of algorithm, a little bit of anthropology, that for the right types of products, that that kind of mix of interests, that kind of disposition could actually be really useful. And so that's, you know, coming out here for grad school at Stanford and decided to stay was really kind of where I plunged into the commitment of saying, hey, I'm going to look for projects that I think are uniquely interesting to me and where I can play a role in, and hopefully not just like grabbing onto the rocket ship and sort of, you know, being being part of something amazing, but where I can actually contribute to that. And so coming out of grad school in 2000, that's where I joined Linden Lab, the company that built the virtual world Second Life as sort of the first non, non-engineer on the team. And that sort of, you know, started, I guess, about a dozen years or so of doing, you know, product management and, and other similar jobs in various size tech companies. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that, you know, there are tons of things going on with with Linden Labs and Second Life in, in particular, the, the product, the game that they built. But can you tell us a little bit more, I guess, about how you created the opportunity to join the team there out of college and really how Second Life grew to over 15 million users sort of sort of at its peak? So it's funny because the time that I was there was pre-hype cycle. So I got introduced to Philip, the founder via mutual acquaintance. I had worked at Mattel the summer of 99. So I'm 43. So we're, you know, we're going back uh, maybe earlier than some of the folks listening. But so it was summer 99. I'd always wanted to work for a toy company and I was in grad school at Stanford. So I went down to LA for the summer and I had a chance to work with a group there called Mattel Interactive, which was sort of at the time, like their video game unit. And they were trying to figure out, they had been doing some interesting work, but had really missed out you know, on the console game boom that was driving Sega and Nintendo and, and the companies at that time. 
And so I got to you know, start to look and say, well, they missed the console revolution, but what about this internet thing? And how is the internet going to continue to change the nature of video games, the nature of interactive play? And so I did a bunch of work for them and I sort of got back and I was really jazzed about what I saw happening, which was the idea that people could create and inhabit these worlds, the Sims, you know, sort of these massively multiplayer games um, in a different way than, you know, maybe it was just possible a few years ago. And so I got connected to Philip at the time. Second Life was kind of the, an early tech demo. It was a few engineers and, um, you know, they needed sort of a jack of all trades. They needed somebody who could do a bunch of stuff um, or figure out a bunch of stuff quickly while kind of the engineers were heads down coding. And so I did some, what we think of as product work, but I also did a lot of marketing, community, business development, like, you know, wrote the business plan, like built the original financial models. Like, and so it was a role that kind of changed and evolved during the three years I was there to just identify what was the hardest problem that we needed to solve to be able to move forward and how could I solve that? Sometimes solving it meant doing it myself, sometimes solving it meant hiring somebody to do it, sometimes solving it meant deciding that it wasn't actually that important or not that big a risk and so let's defer it to later. But it was very much like each week, you know, was sort of a combination of things that I knew I'd have to get done and then new things that would arise. Yeah, for sure. And, and this is, you know, 1999 and, and shortly after, what were some of the biggest challenges you guys, you know, faced in terms of building this, you know, massive online multiplayer game? Of course. So I was there about, you know, like 2000 to 2003. You have to think back, it was a really different time. So for example, when we started to talk to investors, we were, you know, these, these consumer VCs, these folks who had, you know, sort of just made tons of money off Yahoo and, um, you know, the other sort of eBay and stuff like we would actually get into disagreements. They didn't, a number of them didn't necessarily think that broadband was going to be something that consumers would pay for. Um, yes, you'd have fast connections at work, but it wasn't yet certain if you were gonna have broadband in the home. And we were a broadband dependent you know, application. And we had this vision of a future where broadband would be ubiquitous, where it would be a utility like you know, electricity or water, where you, like you, meet, you might even pay your, you know, your broadband bill before you pay your power bill. And so you know, it was encountering a lot of that type of conversation, resistance, um, because we were trying to do something that was so far out there. Uh, maybe too far out there in some respects. So it was, you know, besides solving very hard technical problems, it was getting some momentum behind what we were trying to do. And eventually, really, it was, you know, sort of initial fundraising came more from individual angels and rather than large VCs. And then it was just getting something out there that we felt was good enough to charge for. So from the beginning, it was always going to be sort of a, a free trial, free to try, but like we were going to make our money off subscription. And that too was, you know, more similar to some of the game, you know, the games where you'd be paying a monthly fee to, you know, use, you know, EverQuest or stuff like that. And, but we weren't a game. So, you know, we were very early on trying to create something that we thought was valuable enough that people would be willing to pay for it. But then how would we, how would we describe it and communicate to what it actually was? And that was tough. And I think part of that came from like, you know, maybe overestimating the size of the market for what we were building. You know, when, when I left uh, in uh, late 2003, you know, part of it was I wanted to touch 50 million, you know, 500 million people faster than I thought Second Life would have the chance to, to do, which at the time was, you know, more like sort of, you know, 5,000 people. And um, of course, you know, interesting enough now, Second Life is a, people always say like, well, what happened to that? Is that still around? 
around, it's like, yeah, it's actually been a profitable ongoing company for you know a, a long time now. But it just never got past that sort of you know dedicated half million million users uh, type of, uh, of consumer base. Yeah, absolutely. Still, still a crazy experience, I'm sure. Yeah. So in 2003, you know, you ended up leaving and joining Google as a product manager, uh, and then eventually, you know, had a chance to work primarily on YouTube for for a while. So, what was you know YouTube Google like when you were working on it, when it was acquired, and then in, in in that time, I guess. Yeah. So you know, when I left Linden Lab, uh, the maker of Second Life, in late 2003, I wasn't necessarily, or maybe it was like fall, like fall 2003. I wasn't like, oh, hey, Google's this awesome place. I gotta go there. I was looking at some other startups. I was thinking about starting something myself. I had some other ideas, but I, I knew a bunch of people who worked at Google which at the time was, you know, quote unquote, just a search engine. They hadn't released Google Earth, Google Maps. They hadn't released Gmail. And I kept saying, they were like, well, you know, hey, Second Life's really cool. You know, like, why'd you leave? And I said, look, well, you know, hey, you know, the company's going needs, to needs to figure stuff out. Like, we're growing slowly, you know, like we downsized a little bit. But like, at the end of the day, it was really, I just want to, I want to touch more people faster. I want something that's going to be scale, where it's possible that every internet user is an active user of the product. And they're like, oh man, you should, you should talk to Google. Google because they knew if you were on the inside, then this was pre-IPO because nobody really on the outside knew, you know, sort of Google's numbers, but they're like, we, like our user base is incredible and growing. And we have like, this is an amazing business, which is going to give us the resources to build all these other, other things that were, you know, within the next year, going to start to release. And so I spent, you know, it happened over a two week period. I spent nine out of 10 days interviewing at Google <laughs> over two weeks for wow. three different jobs, for three different jobs. And um, it was about how big was it? It was 800 people, maybe a thousand people. So it wasn't tiny, but it was still sort of like, you know, in one building and it felt very startup y. And um, I got the offer and I remember sort of telling my girlfriend at the time, now wife, and my, and, and my mom. And I was telling them about it. I'm like, oh, it feels too big. You know, like uh, I'm used to being at board meetings. Like I don't think Larry and Sergey are going to invite me to board meetings. And both of them said, like, you just keep talking about like how smart everyone there is. Like, why don't you? Don't talk yourself out of it. Like, just go there, try it out. If you don't like it, you can leave. But don't talk yourself out of it. And that was really great advice. And uh, you know, I went and I and I stayed for nine years. Um, so yeah, so I spent three years working on AdSense and then um, six years working on um, YouTube. It's amazing. And so uh, a few weeks ago on, on, you know, the 10th anniversary of the iPhone announcement, you had this really interesting thread going on Twitter, yeah, yeah. Which, which is actually what kicked off, you know, th this call about specifically how Apple approached, you know, YouTube regarding, you know, uh, mobile video and having it as an app there. Um, so for those who might have missed that thread, which you did save as a, as a medium post, which we will link to, but can you just summarize, I guess, that that whole process and, and you know, go above and beyond the, the 140 characters to tell us yeah. a little bit more about some of the challenges and what it was like making that first move to mobile for YouTube? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was fun tweeting that out because it was just sort of like the 10th anniversary of the iPhone. And I realized that there was this story that hadn't been told. And I, I didn't expect that it would be so interesting. Um, but a bunch of people, you know, were asking me about it. So basically, YouTube is still, you know, after be, after having started in 2005, acquired by Google, you know, 2006, uh, into 2006, YouTube is, you know, clearly one of the largest and most important, you know, sort of internet properties out there. Right now, the biggest, probably the biggest difference between YouTube of you know 2017 and YouTube of 2007 is the amount of consumption that occurs out of the browser on um, mobile devices or on mobile browsers in in app. You know, it, it's it's the majority in some in some areas at sometimes a day, and it's it's amazing to 
look back and think that, man, like YouTube started pre-mobile. Why and how were they able to make the leap to mobile to ensure that, you know, sort of the YouTube, the YouTube of the mobile generation would be YouTube and not somebody else who built, you know, sort of a mobile first app. And a lot of that came down to a set of decisions, you know, that, or I think a lot of it came down to a set of decisions we made, you know, during 2007. So Google, Google basically told YouTube that, uh, hey, look, you can operate independently. Like, obviously, you're owned by us, you know, you're, you're responsible for like doing the right thing and growing, but like, don't worry about spending all your time thinking about Google strategy. Think about YouTube strategy. What makes sense for YouTube? And so we got approached by Apple, who hadn't yet announced the iPhone, but basically said, hey, look, there's some stuff going on here we need to talk to you about. There's some places that we want to start to put YouTube video, and we need to do an API deal for that. And a very, very small set of the people who were aware of the deal like actually understood that it was going to be this new mobile device and got to you know go into the, you know, the clean room in, uh, in Cupertino and you know see the device. But essentially what they were doing was they, uh, you know, did a did a deal where YouTube content could be syndicated into imported into iMovie easily for editing uh, if it was your content. Um, but most importantly, be this default app, uh, YouTube app that would ship with the first iPhone. And um, they were very interested in helping, you know, at this time, people were pre smartphones, and most people didn't have data plans. And so they needed to convince convince the world that you could do a lot of really cool things with a smartphone and a data plan that you couldn't do on a flip phone. Um, and watch video was one of those magical experiences. So the deal was kind of, hey, you know, we're gonna build the app. You know, Steve is very focused on uniformity of experience and you know, there wasn't a third party app store yet. So we're gonna build this app, but there's some contractual improvement, you know, uh, approvals around us making sure we're both happy with it, so on and so forth, and we'll ship you on iPhones. So there was a little bit of discussion, pros and cons, all this type of stuff, you know, because we had grown on the back of, you know, some of the social network ecosystems. And so, hey, now are we, you know, was somebody else going to do that to us? Was somebody else going to take our content and like build their business on top of YouTube? And what would, you know, why would we do it? But, you know, I think we came out of it kind of uniformly believing that it was worth the risk. And it was worth the risk for two reasons. First, we were convinced that mobile was going to be important. Um, so we didn't have any concerns about, oh, maybe this is going to be a flop or maybe, you know, people aren't interested in, hot, in these high-end you know, computing devices. Because remember, I, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, like, I was convinced that broadband was going to be a consumer utility at a point at which not everybody believed it. And so, like, similarly, and I wasn't alone, but similarly, we sort of said, like, oh, my God, this is the future. Like, everybody's going to want a supercomputer in their pocket. And the fact that you can upload, you know, upload, record and upload video as well as, you know, stream it back to you is magical. And the second thing was we were also going to be making, you know, traditionally the way that applications got on phones was that you paid you know, the carrier. They would say, hey, you want to put your game, you want to put your app on the deck of the StarTac, you know, Sprint, StarTac, whatever. Here's how much you have to pay Sprint to do that. Um, so we sort of felt like we could make a dramatic statement, which is essentially consumers want YouTube on their phones, and it's about finding mutually beneficial ways to do that. It's not about us paying for distribution. And so the Apple deal kind of helped, I think, uh, set, set an expectation that, hey, if you were buying a high-end phone, you know, it was gonna be YouTube compatible. It was YouTube ready. You know, how do I use YouTube on this? And no no carrier, you know, no manufacturer wanted to say, you know, oh, well, you know, you can't because, you know, we didn't do the business development deal. We didn't, you know, we tried to charge the money and they wouldn't pay us. So it essentially created a dynamic where, you know, everybody started coming to us and saying, okay, 
we want, you know, we want to use YouTube in our marketing. We want to make sure YouTube functions well on our phone. It started a really good, mutually beneficial relationship with the mobile industry that we might have otherwise lacked. But then, you know, five years later, we sort of made the decision to um, stop being a default app. It was a lot of it was around kind of controlling our destiny a little bit more, starting to build in monetization faster because uh, the iOS app didn't include ads, which meant we couldn't monetize videos um, and couldn't pay content creators for that content. And we very much wanted to make sure that content creators were getting paid. And so overnight in the next version of iOS, you know, every new phone didn't have YouTube. And we sort of had to like very quickly claw our way back to get you know, reinstalled on millions and millions and millions of devices. So it was an, it was an amazing period and one that I feel so fortunate you know, to have been, been, been a part of, in some cases had a hand in, in other cases just got to you know, observe amazing teams doing great work. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what, what an amazing story and what an amazing period. And so what was that process like from a marketing perspective in terms of all of a sudden it's disappeared overnight and you guys are you know, trying to convince people to put it back on their phone? Was there much of yeah. that or were people sort of looking for it like, hey, where did YouTube go? It was both. It was obviously, um, it was all hands on deck. Google and YouTube worked really well together to use the footprint of all the apps that Google had, including you know Google search, to make sure that we were promoting the YouTube app. Also, anytime you hit the, you know, YouTube links are everywhere, whether you're getting them shared to you, whether you're encountering a YouTube video on a social platform, whether it's a search result, like anytime you, you'd hit that, that browser link, you know, we would pop up a download promo, all that type of stuff. So it, it worked actually really, really well. Um, in addition to consumers, when they get a new phone, just saying like, oh, uh, where'd YouTube go? Okay, you know, let me go search for it and download it. By that time, people were pretty comfortable doing that. So it was a big risk. It was one, you know, in terms of removing from the default, but it was also one that I think maybe Google and YouTube were uniquely handled, you know, uniquely well positioned to handle um, versus like a smaller startup or a non-tech company or a company where you had no other apps, right? So, you know, by that time, there was sort of a constellation of, of Google apps that we could use to cross promote. For sure. And what were some of the other like, you know, big challenges involved in continuing to build YouTube as one of the biggest, you know, platforms in the world, uh, getting, you know, millions of, of uh, video views a day? Yeah. So, you know, when I when I came over, YouTube was already this phenomenon. It was growing really quickly. But it was people, some people worried it was just sort of a, a fad. There were some lawsuits, right? So there was this question around copyrighted content and are we treating it correctly? And then, you know, we weren't monetizing yet. And so during sort of the five years that I led the product team, we went from 100 million players back today, which is still considerable, to over 4 billion. Um, so, you know, more than 40x growth off of, off of a really large number. We won or settled all the lawsuits. It turns out that we were doing exactly the right thing. And by building Content ID, we actually helped rights owners make business decisions about, you know, if a fan used a, a video, a piece of video, or a fan used music in their own video, like, do you want us to take that down? Do you want us to monetize it and send you, you know, the record label, you know, the money for it? Like, tell us, you know, make this all sort of programmatic. And, you know, we turned it into a multi-billion dollar revenue stream um, through a combination of ad formats. So it was basically taking this thing that um, Google had, you know, just paid about, you know, 1.6, $1.7 billion for. And if you go back, like in the, you know, way back machine, like the press coverage was not generous. People were like, oh, this is Google's folly. This is just dogs on skateboards. You know, how could something be worth more than a billion dollars? Um, you know, it was one of the most substantial sort of consumer tech acquisitions at the time. And, you know, by the, by the time I left, um, the team had turned, you know, turned, turned it into Wall Street analysts, you know, suggesting that YouTube might be worth $80 billion, you know, if it was a standalone company and things like that. So, you know, it was that type of growth. It was the culture continuing to attract really smart people 
um, to want to work on the, you know, on, on YouTube, even though it was, you know, no longer a, a hot independent startup. And it was navigating a little bit of Google's priorities, right? So over time, parts of our independence were sort of solidified, like we could hire our own people. But other parts of it, you know, we had to start attending more kind of like Google-wide strategy meetings and figure out what initiatives like Google Plus meant for YouTube and how could YouTube help Google Plus succeed and things like that. Whereas maybe a few years prior, we didn't have that same strategy tax. Yeah, absolutely. Still really, really cool. Uh, really quickly. So today you're the partner at, at Homebrew. So can you tell us a little bit more about what Homebrew is all about and your approach to investing and, and really launching that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, towards the end of 2012, I was thinking about leaving Google. My partner here at Homebrew, Satya Patel, was somebody I had worked with at Google from 03 to 06. We always wanted to work together again. And um, he had been running product at Twitter and uh, left doing that in the middle of 2012. So wow, all of a sudden for the first time, we had a chance to sit down and talk about what we'd start together, not me trying to convince him to come to YouTube or him trying to convince me to come to Twitter. And that's where we came up with Homebrew. We decided that what we really enjoyed after having worked in a bunch of hyper growth companies, and he had also been a venture investor before, but what we really enjoyed were the first few years of these companies from the sort of foundation creation stage, you know, uh, into sort of years two, three, four, when, when that hyper growth, you know, could begin, or when you start to see things really work and, you know, a small company starts to, starts to grow. And we also saw that entrepreneurs at that stage had lots of capital, like seed, seed rounds were, um, not as rare as maybe they were a few years ago. There were, there was more capital available, but like most of that capital were people writing hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar checks into, let's say a 1 million, 2 million, $3 round and, and writing 50 of those checks a year. So it might be a little bit more passive. I mean, great investors, but people who were like, Hey, let me know if I can help versus, you know, here's what we're doing to help. And so we created a fund that was simply the, the type of the type of VC that we would have wanted to take money from. We invest in about eight or so companies a year. Uh, we try to play a leadership role in the financing. So we're really, you know, we're happy to be first to commit. We're happy to get other people excited about it. And then we're happy to go to work on behalf of that company for the next several years, um, working with those founders to make sure that whether it's, you know, figuring out the product, figuring out the sales strategy, hiring, um, that we can do, you know, whatever, whatever they need to make sure that they're moving, uh, you know, as fast as possible with the highest probability of success. So we're based out here in San Francisco. We're about midway into our second fund. Um, about four and a half years in, you can, if you're, if you're not good, you, you know that by then, yeah. but, uh, but otherwise you're still proving. And so, but we've been lucky enough to invest in some great companies like um, Cruise, an autonomous car company that uh, General Motors bought for north of a billion dollars. We have a great company out of New York called uh, Managed by Q, um, which is sort of doing virtual management. It's sort of, we, we work for everybody else, uh, have raised several rounds of capital and are, and are doing very well. A company out of New York called The Skim that's in the media space, um, as well as some, some other notable investments. So um, we're just really happy about the types of founders we've had the chance to work with, um, really good people who aren't just smart, aren't just hustling, but have a have a have a vision for, you know, the, the culture, the mission behind what they're doing. And um, yeah, this is, a, you know, it's a long, it's a long business. It's not like when I was at YouTube, and I could, you know, if we wanted to make a change and test it, you know, we could we could ship that code, we could do a, an AB test, and we'd have data back right away, conclusive data. Uh, venture venture isn't like that. But you know, we, we really enjoy doing it and doing it our way. It's awesome. Well, congrats on the success so far. And we'll have to, you know, keep keep our eyes uh, on, on what's to come in the future. I'm sure more good things are coming. Yeah, please. I'm always happy. Uh, I'm on Twitter all the time. So, you know, at Hunter Walk, if people want to uh, uh, ever ask me anything online, I, I try to respond uh, as quickly as I can. That's wicked. And so maybe just to, to recap, you know, the episode, do you have any final thoughts or words of advice for other product managers or entrepreneurs out there currently working on something? 
So yeah, so I think a lot about, you know, people talk about product market fit. I think you should also think about founder market fit. If you don't have a particular, you know, empathy or insight about the problem you're trying to solve, you should really sort of reconsider wanting to spend 10 years of your life. I also wouldn't get over, like people always say market size, market size, market size, pick a big market. That's true, but I would sort of focus on problem size. So what you want is a large an urgent and a valuable problem to solve. So for example, um, like personal photo storage, you know, is large, but it's not particularly urgent or valuable. Like people don't seem to be willing to pay for it. And they, um, they have lots of solutions in the meantime. And so those startups tend to struggle. Whereas, you know, even something that seems to be a small market, which just means, hey, given what, pe- given what people can spend money on today, they're not yet spending that money because a, a, a great product doesn't exist. But if there's a large interest and a willingness to spend, but just a dissatisfaction with the current product offerings and like don't worry about it build the product that you think should exist and assume that you can you know convince people to spend for it so i would just say don't only focus on market size focus on problem size absolutely great words of advice uh, hunter thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today it was amazing to have you on the show thanks so much i look forward to uh coming back at some point if you've enjoyed this podcast we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us a line, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.